Good morning. Again, it's good to see you. Uh, Welcome to Christ the King. If you're a visitor or guest, we're glad that you're here. Excuse me, my name is Penny and I'm the pastor here. Excuse me, that was Matt who is leading our liturgy, uh, one of our uh, members and a seminary student preparing for ministry. And we're just glad that you're here. I know that there are probably many people in town visiting family and or friends. Uh, you're, you're, we're glad that you would spend your Sunday with us, and uh, we want you to know that you are welcome uh, in this place, and that uh, we hope that you feel feel that, and that you know that you uh, you are appreciated. And uh, if you have any questions or would like to know anything more about our, the church, please talk to me or talk to some of the people around you. Uh, we are glad that you're here. Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. So uh, if you've been with us the last number of weeks, you know that we've been in the book of Ephesians, but um, as I already mentioned, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and so um, we're going to do an Advent series. So Lord willing, this is going to be our habit for the next I, I don't know, 30 years maybe, you know, as long as I'm the pastor. How about that? So, um, uh, so, uh, so every Advent, we'll take a break from whatever we're doing. Don't worry, we'll come back to it. We won't just kind of leave Ephesians out there, uh, leave you guys hanging to know what's going to happen in the future. But, but it is, I, I think it's important for us to spend some time considering uh, different passages of Scripture in regards to Jesus' first coming. Um, This is what we celebrate at this season. This is what we're going to be celebrating in a couple of weeks at Christmas. And so it's appropriate for us to consider not just what our culture would say about this event, but what God's word says about this event. So we're going to do that over the next few weeks through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to focus on the first two chapters of Luke. This is Jesus' birth narrative. So you can turn to Luke 1, or you can follow along in your order of service. But before we read this passage, I want you to think about, if you are a transplant here to the Roanoke Valley, I want you to think about the very first time that you came to Roanoke, the first few times that you had the experience of of coming here. Maybe you were looking for a job or a house. Maybe you were visiting a friend or a family member. I want you to have that in your mind. And if if you grew up here, I want you to, you you probably don't remember the first time you were in the Roanoke Valley, no. Um, But but I want you to think about what it is that you tell people about Roanoke. When they say, what is Roanoke like? Tell me about what it looks like and and what the feel of it is. I want you to think about those sorts of things, okay? You've, You've got it. You've got that first experience for those of you who are transplants. Well, I'll tell you what was the first thing that Kat and I noticed when we flew in and we came into Roanoke for one weekend, the first time we were here. The first thing we noticed was the mountains, right? I mean, they are everywhere. We spent the weekend, and Kat said afterwards, I felt claustrophobic, <laughs> like they were just kind of on top of you, right? And especially if you're coming from a place that's flat, it, it is kind of weird. It's, it's almost oppressive how you look around, and all you see is mountains and trees and, you know, all these sorts of things. But, but after the kind of uh, the claustrophobia, would that be the word? The claustrophobia wore off, we started to see that the mountains are really beautiful, Right? I mean, that, that's actually what I tell friends now. What, what's Roanoke like? It is beautiful. 
the mountains. You got to come and check them out. And I know that the fall hasn't been as pretty as people told us it was going to be. I thought it was pretty, but, you know, y'all have set the bar pretty high. But even in the fall, right, like the changing of colors, and we see orange and yellow on the sides of mountains, and, and it really is wondrous, The first few weeks that we were here, I was driving from the office, and I would drive along Brambleton away from the city towards, I think that's Bent Mountain. Is that right? See, I'm starting to learn, right? So that's Bent Mountain. I'm going in that direction. And I was struck constantly by the majesty. The sun would be descending behind the mountain, the shadow that it would cast. I mean, it was beautiful. Every day I felt that way. Man, God is a creator, He is creative, and he shows his creativeness in his creation. It is beautiful. You know, after a couple of months of doing that drive, I I don't have that same wonder anymore. Like, the mountain, it's just kind of become a little bit of of kind of this, uh, this, this background now to whatever I'm doing in my day, right? I don't stop at the stoplight and just gaze at the mountain anymore. I'm thinking about, man, I got to turn left and I got to get home and make dinner, you know, all these sorts of things that, that the wonder of it has actually been lost. That's kind of faded to the background. There's actually a term for this. It's called visual lethargy, visual lethargy. And what visual lethargy is, is it says that the more we see something, the less we actually see it that it starts to fade into the background of our conscience, of, of our awareness of the world around us, visual lethargy. And we all do it. We do it with the mountains around us. We do it with the changing of seasons. We do it actually with one another, right? That's, that's why, wives, oftentimes your husbands don't notice when your hair gets cut, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, is that just my experience? <laughs> okay, I didn't think so. Uh, it's, it's visual lethargy. The more you see something, the less you actually see it. And we don't just do it with the world around us. We don't just do it with creation or with our relationships with one another. I think we also do it with the Lord. I think we do it especially at this time with Christmas. You see, we get really excited about trees and about wreaths and lights and all these sorts of things about presents, but, but actually the story that undergirds our excitement and the story that is the foundation for the traditions that we have established around this season, they actually kind of get pushed off to the side, right? Luke 1, a virgin being born, pff, been there, done that. Like, I've heard this story before. It's not visual lethargy, it's Christmas lethargy. One writer put it this way, speaking about this phenomenon that we all experience. He said this, The beauty that once attracted you is still there to see, but you don't see it. And you cannot celebrate what you failed to see. It's still there, but, but it kind of just fades to the background. Visual lethargy, Christmas lethargy. We do it with these passages, and this is why I want us to spend a few weeks in these passages. I want to encourage us as we come to Luke and as we go through this birth narrative, I want to encourage you and encourage me to come to these passages with a renewed way of seeing that we would not fall victim again to the lethargy of I've been there, done that, I've heard this story, but that we would allow these words to actually roll over us and to seep deep into our hearts and our imaginations so that we would not fall victim to monotony, but we would see the wonder and the beauty again and again and again.
So with that, let us now read Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. The writer Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and, is, and this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, as I was reading this passage again, I was struck by just how uh, plain and ordinary Mary is. I think we forget that. Excuse me. Mary is just this poor, everyday, inconsequential girl. That's what she is. She's a girl. Most commentators think she was probably between the ages of 12 and 14 when this occurred. So Mary is this woman, this girl, this woman-to-be, and all of a sudden the angel comes and speaks to her. There's nothing attractive about her. There's nothing that's actually uh, motivating the angel to come to her about who she is, right? Her existence would have been very simple and very plain. I mean, she was, sure, she was going to be married into the line of David. That's, that's a pretty big deal. But, but Joseph wasn't royalty. He wasn't noble. He wasn't rich or powerful. He was a humble carpenter. Mary's life would have been quite inconsequential and quite boring. She would have went about the same things every day. She would gather food and make it and feed her family. She would try and keep her children alive. She would go about her day just as all her contemporaries would. Nothing would have been very different about her. She would just go about her day after day, week after week, year after year, until one day she would just fade from the memory of all those who knew her. Very inconsequential. She's not the person I would have picked to bear the Son of God. Right? I mean, I would have picked someone who's very influential, someone beautiful, someone smart, someone rich or powerful, but, but that's not what God does. He picks someone of humble estate. In Mary's Magnificat, the passage we're going to look at next week, that's what she says, I am one of humble estate. Nothing significant about her. So why would God choose this ordinary girl, this ordinary and simple little girl, but what's amazing is that when the angel comes, the angel Gabriel, to say that she is going to have this son, 
He doesn't appeal to Mary as a person. He doesn't appeal to her beauty or her social standing or anything like that. No, what he appeals to is actually the Lord. Look at verse 28. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. O O favored one. That word favored one. Uh, the, the Greek word actually means to show kindness to someone with the implication of graciousness on the part of the one showing kindness. So the very word itself is not directed towards Mary, but it's actually speaking more about the one who shows the favor. So even in saying you favored one, the angel is highlighting God, God's grace to Mary. The emphasis is on the giver of the favor, not the receiver of it. Martin Luther, when he was writing about Mary and thinking about this situation, he wrote this. He said, Mary, you have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. That the emphasis isn't upon Mary, this ordinary girl, but it's on the God who is going to do an extraordinary work in this ordinary girl. And it's just like God to do this, isn't it? To take the simple, the, the simple, the humble, the ordinary, and to do amazing things. I mean, think about in 1 Samuel, it's Hannah that God hears her prayer. This barren woman. She calls out to God in the temple. She's praying, and God hears her prayer and gives her a son when she shouldn't have been able to bear a son. It was God who took Joseph, who was in jail, and he lifted him up to a place of power and authority, so much authority that he was over all of Egypt but Pharaoh. It was God who took an exiled girl named Esther and made her queen of Persia. This is what God does. This is the business that he is in, taking the ordinary and the simple and doing extraordinary things. That's what he does with Mary. This ordinary and simple girl, and he does an extraordinary thing. He gives to her an extraordinary child. This extraordinary child. There's, there's three things about him that I want to highlight. I know in your uh, order of service there are only two, but the first thing that makes him extraordinary is that he's born of the virgin. He's born of the virgin. We see this in verse, 20, uh, verse 27. Mary is called a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Mary herself, when talking to the angel, says, how can this be? I am a virgin. So the author, Luke, is wanting us to make sure that we understand that, that this isn't just like a scribal error, okay? This isn't a scribal error that, that she truly was a virgin. And what's going to happen to her? Well, verses 30 and 31 The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, now we have to to, um, suspend for a moment what we know about the story, and just let that sink in for a second. A virgin is going to have a son. That doesn't happen, y'all. Like, that is a physical impossibility. Anybody seen that happen? No, it doesn't happen. It can't happen. Now, we're used to this story, and so it's kind of not a big deal, right? Oh, yeah, virgin's going to have a son. Yeah, go about our day. You know, what's for dinner, sweetie? No, that, this is a huge deal. A virgin is going to bear a son. In fact, so much so that Mary asked that question. How can this happen? It doesn't make sense. 
It doesn't make sense. It is an impossibility. But God is going to do the impossible. An extraordinary child who is born of the virgin. But this child is not just born of, the vir- of a virgin. This child is also the son of God. Look at verse 35. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, now that, that actually doesn't really clear it up that much to me. Right? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of God's going to overshadow you. Oh, now I get the, you know, I get how this is going to work. But that's what he says. That this is what's going to happen. That this child is going to be the Son of God. That word most high, it's used multiple times for God. And that's who it's speaking about, God the Father. It's used repeatedly in the Old Testament, like in 2 Samuel 22. It says, the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. The angels wanting to make it picture perfect, to make it crystal clear that this is going to be the very Son of God. And in case we have trouble believing this, which I think I would, the angel points to another impossible thing as proof that it can happen. Did you see what he said? He said, and look, Elizabeth's pregnant too. So before our passage, uh, the, the same angel, the angel Gabriel, came to the priest Zechariah and said to Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah said, how is that going to happen? Right? My wife Elizabeth is too old. She's beyond the age of being able to have children. And Zechariah, <clears throat> he wasn't asking as to try and find information to seek understanding like Mary is. He was actually questioning. He was doubting. And so he struck dumb, remember? Later, he would be given his voice again. But, but the point is, is, is the angel is saying, God can actually give, give this woman who's beyond the age to have children a son. If he can do that to her, he can do this to you, Mary, as well. The incredible has happened. The barren is now barren chi- a child. The impossible happens. The virgin is going to give birth. That's what he says. Nothing is impossible for God. This is incredible. This extraordinary child, born of a virgin, the son of God, but, but he's also the heir of David. We hear of it in th- verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The throne of his father David. Now, the angel is hearkening back to the covenant that God made with David. So if you remember uh, in our Old Testaments, God uh, interacts with his people. He, He communicates to them through the means of covenants. So these are just promises, right? So we have the covenant made with Adam and then Noah and Abraham and Moses and now with David in 2 Samuel 7. And in this promise, this covenant that God makes, he says this to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who who shall come from your body and I will establish your kingdom and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. That is the promise. 
that there would be a son, a, a line that would come through David, that a king would be raised up who would sit on David's throne forever. Okay, that promise made to David happened, give or take, about 900 years before the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary. Can you all fathom that? 900 years God's people waited for the king to come. 900 years. Every king in the line of David would be born and would sit upon the throne, and they would wonder, is this the one? And only have their hope diminish when it proved that he wasn't. Every generation, one after another after another, were hoping and longing for this king to come. 900 years they waited. We have trouble waiting two minutes for our food to heat up in the microwave. And they waited 900 years for the most important person to ever live to come. Think their faith maybe would have started to waver? Think yours would? Or mine? 900 years. In 586, when Jerusalem fell, and they weren't even under a Davidic king any longer, but now they were under a foreign king, do you, do you think they could maybe start to wonder, was our hope for naught? Has the promise failed? 900 years. Now the angel stands before Mary and says, your hope is not for naught. The hope that you have had, it is coming to fruition. The king that you have been waiting for, the, the king that you have been longing for, he is coming. He's coming. And to us, he tells us that, that he has come. This child who would be king, the one who would sit on David's throne, who would reign forever, he has come and he is reigning even now. This Jesus, he is the hope of Israel, but he's also our hope. He's a child born in obscurity, a, a child who would live and die and rise and ascend so that even now, right now, he is sitting on David's throne and he is reigning for all time. That that king that we have wanted and we have longed for, he has come and he is reigning now. The wait is over. The 900 years, it, it's over. They can rejoice and celebrate because Israel, your king, he has come. And that's a lot for a 12 to 14-year-old girl to take in, isn't it? I mean, th think about that. Like, what would be a reasonable response on the part of Mary to hearing all this? Fear, anxiety, concern, worry, joy. Yes, all of it. I could imagine, I wouldn't blame her if she would have said something like, it, you know, it, isn't there some, someone a little bit better prepared for this? <laughs> someone a little bit older, someone who's read some more of the parenting books than I have, right? Like, like isn't there someone out there that, that God thinks would do a better job? Because, you know, she's going to raise the king of the universe. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I have enough anxiety with my own children, but she's going to raise the king of the universe, I wouldn't blame her if she was a little fearful, if she was a little concerned, if she responded and asked the angel to go, you know, go to the house next door. It would have been reasonable. That's not how she responded. She didn't respond with fear. She didn't respond with doubt. She 
respond with obedience. In verse 38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. We can't minimize this. This response that she gives, it is amazing. It's amazing because of the culture in which she's inhabiting, the culture in which she lives. Because in a few months, she's going to start showing. And everyone's going to know that she's not married. And there are going to be whispers. And there are going to be comments. And there are going to be things that are going to be said. And there are going to be people who are going to go, oh yeah, Mary, sure. The Spirit of God came upon you and the power of the Most High overshadowed you. And you have God's Son in you. And by the way, you're silver. Oh yeah, we believe you, right? <laughs> Wait, wait, nudge, nudge. No way, right? This is a concocted story to cover up a scandalous event. That's how people would envision this. She knows to respond in obedience that this could cost her her fiancé, and it almost did, right? Because we know that Joseph actually was going to divorce her quietly until the angel showed up. All this that could have happened, the fears of the whispering, the fears of the misunderstandings, not just fears, but they came to fruition. Do you remember when Jesus was in his ministry? He's healing, he's proclaiming, he's preaching, he's going about town to town. What did people say? Isn't that Mary's son? We know all about Mary's son. Like, don't, don't miss that. When the crowds asked that, isn't this Mary's son? There was a nudge, nudge, Remember? His birth was scandalous. And yet, despite the knowledge that there would be whispers, and despite the knowledge that she could be cast out, what does she say? I am the servant of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord. Her response is nothing short of heroic. It's heroic that she would obey the Lord no matter the cost to her reputation or her name. It's amazing because, because of her response, the, the whispers actually moved away from whispers, and in coming generations, they, they turned to benediction. Blessed are you among all women. There is no more simpler Simpler, no more profound, no more heroic response than I am the servant of the Lord. And friends, most of us will never be called to this sort of response. Most of us will never be put into this sort of a place where we would have to respond with such heroism. But every one of us is called to respond and fall before this child and obey. Every one of us, whether we are going to endure whispers or or names, or people's confusion, or, or if it's simply a, a simple obedience of, of ordinary work and in our homes and in our schools, we are all called to echo Mary's words, I am the servant of the Lord. Regardless of our station, regardless of our situation, that we would respond to God's call, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And this obedient response by a simple, simple 
ordinary girl because of an extraordinary child. You know, as I was thinking more about this passage and actually the birth narratives in Luke and Matthew, I started to realize something like there's actually very little attention given to these stories in the Bible. Have you ever thought, thought about that? Like there's probably about four chapters worth that talk about the birth of Jesus. That seems odd to me because this is a pretty important event, right? I mean, we celebrate every year. You would think that, that God would give us chapter after chapter of it because God talks about lots of things, right? Like grace and forgiveness are on pretty much every page of the Bible. And if we want to know about practical things like marriage or how to love one another, we can find countless places to look at those situations. I mean, whole books, right, talk about how we are to care for one another and live with one another. And yet this event, this monumental event, only shows up in a couple places. I mean, wouldn't God have known that, that we, as, as the people that we are, would kind of get bored with the monotony? year after year, hearing the same story? Why did he only give us a couple of chapters? Well, as I was thinking about this, and I was trying to figure out, kind of trying to get into the mind of God, which isn't very wise, but um, uh, as I was trying to understand uh, the monotony and the, the mundaneness of this and why God has given it to us to recount year after year after year, the words of G.K. Chesterton came to mind. G.K. Chesterton, in his uh, wonderful book, Orthodoxy, has a chapter called The Ethics of Elfland. The Ethics of Elfland. It is my favorite chapter of every, any book in the history of the world, outside the Bible. Um, but, um, but it is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. And in The Ethics of Elfland, Chesterton uh, talks about uh, the monotony that he sees in our daily lives in the world around us. We experience this, right? Like the sun rises every day and it sets every evening and it's replaced by the moon and the stars. And every spring, tulips come up and they look just like the tulips that came up a year ago. It's monotony, the same thing again and again and again, this repetition, this pattern. And as he's reflecting on this, this is what he said. He said, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> Man, that is so true. <laughs> oh, I can't lift you. Yeah. For, he goes on. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. And then he redirects, he focuses on God, and he says, but perhaps, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. The repetition may not be a mere recurrence, it may be a theatrical encore. And that is majestic. Theatrical encore. I started wondering, maybe God has only given us a couple chapters to reflect upon this story year after year after year because God doesn't tire of hearing this same old story. Maybe each year God says, do it again, because he never tires of marveling in the beauty of this wonder, wondrous story of a child and a girl and a response. So friends, perhaps... 
Instead of falling victim to lethargy, we would say, do it again. Tell us again. Let me hear the story of this most extraordinary child born to a very ordinary girl responded with complete obedience. Tell us again. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and this story. This wonderful story that tells of your son, our Lord Jesus. He is the center of the universe. He is the one that our hope, our hope rests upon. And so we say, tell us again. Tell us again of this wonderful story that we would remind, be reminded of your grace, your commitment, your love for your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, our God and our King, and all God's people said, Amen.